This is the hour of doom. And bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom's Survival Medicine Podcast, a land of lawfulness in a lawless world. And the number one show about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness, as far as I know. <laughs> medical preparedness. <laughs> it's, it's like Yellowstone, if by stone you mean jaundice. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that was a great place. <laughs> That's right. Hey, and who am I? I am Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And this is... Nurse Amy. Actually, Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so tough, she chews gravel instead of gum. Oh boy, that would be terrible for your teeth. She is tough. <laughs> Listen, on this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, but you're also going to get the unconventional medical wisdom. And if you're still listening, random acts of senility by somebody way too old to drive a Harley. Now, whatever it takes to make your family medically prepared for tough times, we're going to do, and you're going to hear it here. But first, you got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't, tough guy. What's a little zombie apocalypse to you? But answer me this. Who's going to keep your family safe and sound in disastrous times? What happens when all the hospitals are out of commission and someone's sick or injured? Who takes over? Don't look at me. I'm just an old country doctor. I'm looking at you, pal. When it's least expected, you're going to be elected. Medic. Bushcrafter. And you're going to also... Et cetera. Et cetera. Et cetera. Dog catcher. (laughs) So get off your duff and learn some stuff. And why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? Amy can tell you where you can find some, and that's at store.doomandbloom.net. I want to mention the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon, over more than 2,000 reviews, still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked out our new book, you'll find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version on our website. Well, it's winter and some folks are going to be heading for ski resorts, and that means a big change in altitude for most. The National Academy of Sciences reports that about 33.5% of the population lives below an elevation of 100 meters above sea level. That means that in any major disaster, getting out of Dodge often means heading for the hills. There's a possibility that we might have to abruptly relocate from a home at sea level to a bug out location in the mountains. Many people adjust to changes in climate and altitude pretty easily, and other people don't. The rapid change in altitude can cause a condition known as altitude sickness, or now it's called acute mountain sickness, AMS. A certain amount of oxygen is needed to maintain the body physically and mentally, we know that. The availability of this oxygen is less as air pressure decreases at higher elevations, leading to something called hypoxemia, a major issue in mountain sickness. It occurs most commonly at elevations of 8,000 feet above sea level or more, although some people experience symptoms somewhat lower levels. At present, there's little hard data that predicts exactly which flatlander in your party is most likely to develop symptoms. The speed of ascent and the altitude reach, especially 8,000 feet or greater, are general factors. The effects of altitude sickness are more noticeable with the exertion caused by traveling up mountainous terrain by foot. Although most will improve with rest, complications can develop that rapidly become life-threatening. 
So how do you identify acute mountain sickness? You need to monitor for early symptoms. The typical victim of altitude sickness will present to you with hopefully mild symptoms, often over the first eight hours or so of ascent. They'll look and act like somebody with a hangover or maybe a case of the flu without the associated fever. You can expect to see fatigue, dizziness, headaches, nausea and vomiting, lack of appetite, a fast heart rate, tachycardia is what we call that, pins and needles sensations, shortness of breath, and at night, insomnia. A percentage of these sufferers will progress to a more severe state. Now, these folks will manifest with things like cough, chest congestion, but not nasal congestion, by the way, no runny nose, chest congestion. Worsening shortness of breath will certainly occur. You'll find confused and apathetic behavior and cyanosis, which is a blue or gray appearance of the skin, especially around the lips and the fingertips. There's loss of coordination, there's dehydration. As things get even worse, you may even cough up blood. That's called hemoptysis. There's, of course, loss of consciousness once you get to a certain, well, low oxygen level. The most severe cases are caused by accumulation of fluid, known as edema, in certain organs. In altitude sickness, this occurs in the lungs. It's called high-altitude pulmonary edema, or HAPE, H-A-P-E, or occurs in the brain, high-altitude cerebral edema, or H-A-C-E. Either of these can be life-threatening. Now, in most cases, the treatment of altitude sickness is simple. The patient requires rest, if only to stop further ascent and allow more time to acclimate. Wiser still would be to descend to a lower elevation, which is almost certainly result in your patient feeling better. If a lack of available oxygen is the problem with rapid rises in altitude, it makes sense to have a portable canister as part of your medical supplies. In climate-controlled studies, a small amount of supplemental oxygen reproduces the effects of descending to a lower altitude. A medication commonly used for both prevention and treatment of altitude sickness is the prescription drug acetazolamide. That's also called Diamox. It has a diuretic effect, which means that it speeds the elimination of excess fluid from the body by urination. Therefore, it helps prevent the accumulation of fluid in the lungs or brain. Acetazolamide, or Diamox, is superior to many other diuretics in that it also forces the kidneys to excrete bicarbonate. Now, by increasing the amount of bicarbonate that you excrete, the blood becomes more acidic, and acidifying the blood actually stimulates ventilation. That increases the amount of oxygen in the body, and that is helpful. Now, this effect may not be immediate, but it will speed up recovery. It should be noted that Diamox is a prescription medication, but physicians shouldn't have problems prescribing it to you if you let them know you're planning a trip to high-altitude areas. Your doctor should also be able to determine the right dosage. Usually it ranges from about 125 milligrams to up to 1,000 milligrams. Average is about 250 milligrams twice daily. And you have to know that there are some side effects, but they're mild. Usually they involve strange taste in your mouth or maybe tingling of the fingertips. Other medicines known to have a beneficial effect include prescription meds like the blood pressure drug nifedipine and the headache medicine sumatriptan or imitrex. One study found that ibuprofen, just regular ibuprofen, 600 milligrams three times a day, was found to be effective for mild cases. Many mountain doctors, by the way, will give diamox, acetazolamide, and ibuprofen together. The strong steroid decadron is used for those people who have significant amounts of edema in the lungs and brain. Lesser cases can use oral steroids like prednisone. Another thing you might ask your doctor about if you're looking for prescriptions that will help you for a high mountain event. Once down to more reasonable altitudes, and this is immediately essential to do if you have anybody you suspect of having pulmonary edema or cerebral edema, you can expect symptoms of AMS to subside over one to two days in most cases. 
This may occur just with time at the same altitude in some cases as well. Now, other than using medicines like acetazolamide, Diamox, for prevention, there are simple strategies that help decrease the risk of altitude sickness. You should choose your route to your retreat so that the ascent is as gradual as possible. Don't attempt more than 2,000 feet of ascent per day. Now, ensure that your personnel do not become dehydrated as they ascend, and especially avoid the consumption of alcohol. Now, if there's no choice but to make a very quick ascent, it's important to monitor members of your party for their hydration status and response to exertion as well as the signs and symptoms that I mentioned before. There is some evidence that Ginkgo biloba, by the way, may be helpful in the natural prevention of altitude sickness. A small amount of an extract of this substance has been shown to allow the brain to tolerate lower oxygen levels. More research is needed, of course, to determine the appropriate amount for the desired effect. Okay, now I want to talk about a few case histories here. And this is going to relate to mostly altitude sickness, but you might be surprised. I mean, this could be something that relates to any outdoor backcountry expedition. Okay. All right. Well, the first case that we have is we have a 30-year-old man. He comes from New York City. He's taking the vacation of a lifetime. He's at Mount Everest Base Camp at 14,000 feet. But since he arrived this morning, he's developed a headache, loss of appetite, and nausea. Remember, this guy went from sea level to 14,000 feet in about 24 hours or so. So what would you think he has? Now, I'll tell you something that he has a pulse oximeter reading of 84, but his lungs are clear and his neuro exam is normal. So from the standpoint of a severe case of something, of let's say altitude sickness, he hasn't gotten there yet because he would have pulmonary edema. So there you'd be hearing all sorts of noise in his lungs and he would be probably not be able to walk well, be very uncoordinated if he had cerebral edema. Weren't you going to ask me what he had? Because <laughs> yeah. I was going to say altitude sickness, but you just told me he has altitude sickness. You're right. Now, one thing you might not know, though, uh -huh. is that a pulse oximeter reading of 84 at 14,000 feet is actually not too unusual. I'll bet at Everest Base Camp. Well, there's not camp, a lot of oxygen up there. Yeah, that's That kind of makes sense. That's right. At Everest Base Camp, I'm sure a lot of people are walking around with a pulse oximeter reading around that much, that much. Now, what would be the best thing to do? I would get him down. That's right. I would descend instead of ascend. That would be the easiest thing to do, and he would feel better probably pretty quick if you could do that. However... He says, I've got two weeks. Mm -hmm. This is the adventure of a lifetime. I've spent tens of thousands of dollars to do this. Mm -hmm. I'm not going down. Okay, well then you knock him out, strap him onto a stretcher, and shove it down the mountain. And you know what? <laughs> You'll never be wrong. You actually would not be wrong ever by doing that. Okay. By forcing him that to go down. That was a terrible thing for me to say. But there are things that you could use. Remember we <laughs> talked about uh, Diamox as a diuretic to try to get rid of any liquid that yes. may be accumulating. I've edema. taken that when we've gone to Denver. There you go. Yes, I have had right. altitude sickness. Not because I climbed a mountain, but because I went from our sea level here in Florida to Denver level and up in the mountains. And you also it wanted, was hard to take. I bet. Yes, it, it was. Oof, and I, I've, experienced, I've experienced some headaches as well as when I go up to those levels. Not every time, though. That is the weird thing. I don't it's know why. It's not every is. time. And I will say that you also, when it's first happening, don't think about it. Like, it didn't occur to me that I'm having headaches and feeling nauseous 
because of the altitude. You think, is it allergies? Have I eaten something bad? You know, there's you go through this whole list of things that it could be. And I would have to say one of the last things I usually think about is altitude sickness. There you like go. It, did, it just doesn't dawn on you like it could be something like that. Yes, it's true. Because you, I mean, especially when we just live in Florida, we don't ever deal with altitude sickness down here. So that's what we got here. We got a case, a relatively mild case yes. of altitude sickness. Now, he refuses to go down. Okay. So what you're going to do is you're going to put him on Diamox as a diuretic. You're going to give him anti-inflammatory agents like ibuprofen. If you're lucky and you have some prednisone, you might mm -hmm. consider giving that as well. And you're going to keep an eye on this person like a hawk. And keep him in the same location for a little while. That's right. Because he's got to acclimate. Right. He cannot ascend. If he ascend. keeps ascending, it's going to get worse and worse. That's right. And that can be life-threatening. So what are you going to look for every few hours? You're going to look for a worsening headache. You're going to see if he starts vomiting. He's nauseous now. Let's see if he starts vomiting. And see if his coordination gets worse simply by having him, let's say, walk a straight line or, you know, do some very simple tasks. And if that's the circumstance, you see that happening, then there is no choice. That guy goes down. I don't care how much he spent on this vacation. Exactly. Now, let's talk a little bit about another person. Now, okay. this is a 72-year-old, and he's uh, at 12,000 feet, mm -hmm. and he, he's also doing a, a hike, a wilderness backcountry hike, and he starts having some chest pain under his breastbone, under mm -hmm. his sternum, and it's radiating to his back and his jaw. Now, you look at this guy, and his blood pressure is very high. He's 180 over 120. His pulse is 100. Ugh. This guy is sweating. So, what would be the most likely thing for him? I would say he's having a heart attack. And you're absolutely right. <laughs> this is something that you would not be surprised to see, you know, a 72-year-old, if he's at a situation where there's low oxygen and he's exerting himself, mm -hmm. he's on a hike. He's putting you know. strain on his blood vessels that may not have had a lot of width to them in the beginning because he had Blockage. a buildup, right. yeah, of plaques. That's right. So this guy here, you want to give him... The first thing you want to do is you want to shove an aspirin in his mouth, mm -hmm. a full, a full, full strength aspirin, not one of those uh, the three twenty five you know, little baby aspirins. Yes. If you had oxygen, you would give him oxygen. If you had nitroglycerin, you would give him that. That would help the chest pain and increase his uh, oxygenation, blood flow, blood flow right. a little mm -hmm. better. And they even give beta blockers for uh, this type of situation also. And now, get him off the mountain. And get him that, off the mountain. That well, requires. A helicopter. This right. is this is emergency evacuation, right. not hey gee, would you like to walk back down the mountain? Right. You need to get this guy to a medical facility ASAP. Exactly. Okay. Now I have, I have one more. Okay. This one here is a sort of a curveball. Now this is a sixty-year-old male. He's also at Mount Everest base camp, and he starts having. having you know what? We need to just close Mount Everest because <laughs> there's just way too many bad things happening today. Yeah, that's true. If you go up Mount Everest, if you climb Mount Everest, you pass a number of dead bodies oh. that just are too hard to yeah, get no down. Yeah, no thank you. No so thank it's you. pretty, pretty crazy. I'll, I'll stay on the ground. So anyway, he's a 60-year-old <laughs> male. He's on Mount Everest, and he starts having shortness of breath. He's becoming lightheaded okay. after having a meal at about 14,000 feet in Everest Base Camp. Mm -hmm. He collapses. And you, you see this guy, the voice, his voice is hoarse. He's gasping. Uh, he's a guy who's got a number of different medical issues, high blood pressure, atrial tachycardia. He has uh, irregular heartbeat. Sometimes it's speed up and palpitations. 
He has type 2 diabetes. He's got cholesterol issues. He's on all the various medicines. He's on blood pressure medicines. He's on aspirin. He's on Lipitor mm-hmm. for cholesterol. He's on um, uh, something to keep his sugar down. Mm-hmm. And he's on he's on a blood pressure medicine called Indorol. And you take a look at him, and you can only feel his pulse on his neck. You can't feel a radial pulse. You can't feel, feel a femoral pulse. That pulse, interestingly enough, is only 72, and it's regular. So it sounds like things are shutting down. It's a little weird. Well, you can actually tell, Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, uh, the level of hypotension, hypotension, in other words, low blood pressure, in someone based upon what what pulses you can actually feel. If you can only feel a carotid pulse, this guy's systolic blood pressure is only going to be 60 to 70. Mm-hmm. If you can feel a carotid pulse and a radial pulse, then the systolic pressure is at least 80. And if you can feel the carotid pulse, the femoral pulse, and the radial pulse, wait, did I say carotid and radial? So it's carotid and femoral. If the carotid and femoral are both palpable, you that person has got a blood pressure of, a systolic blood pressure of 70 to 80. If you can feel the carotid, femoral, and radial pulse, then it, the, the systolic pressure is at least 80. Okay, because you're feeling all of them. Right. Okay, that makes so, sense. So you listen to his chest, and he has a fast respiration rate. He's indeed short of breath. He's wheezing. He's got some uh, coarse lung sounds, and uh, he has he's red. He's red all over. He has no rash. He, however, he states he's going to die. Now, when somebody tells you he feels like he's going to die, that is serious. These guys are oftentimes right when they feel that way. Okay. And so this is something that's an issue. You've got a lot of, the problem is is that you've got a lot of things that it could be. Is he having a heart attack? Is he having um, that high altitude pulmonary uh, edema, fluid Mm -hmm. accumulation in the lungs? Right. Has he thrown a clot? Right. Does he have, uh, yes, does he have a pulmonary embolism? Mm -hmm. Does he have congestive heart failure? Does he have... Uh, anaphylactic shock does he have a an aneurysm in his aorta or, or something like that that's bursting mm-hmm. you know or is, does he have altitude sickness you know that that's a question so you have to one clue that you have here is that it was a sudden onset after eating right and it just happened he and he started having shortness of breath and collapsed there aren't too many things on the list i just mentioned that are that sudden maybe that blood clot in the lung that you were mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that is a possibility. But these people are usually tachycardic. They have a pulse, high pulse rate when you have that. Of course, uh, a heart attack, a heart attack actually wouldn't give you lung sounds that have wheezing. No. You wouldn't wheeze with it no. with a heart attack. So you've got a number of things that you think that it could be anaphylaxis. Maybe he's got some food allergy or something. He has no rash or tachycardia. But wait, here's the curveball. This guy's on medicine called Indorol. Indorol is a medicine that actually keeps your palpitations in check, lowers your, your heart rate. Mm-hmm. And so his heart rate is only 72. And sure enough, this is indeed what he has. He's suffering from anaphylactic shock. And indeed, it's the second largest cause of death in the backcountry, usually due to insect stings, but not food necessarily. Man, it causes 1,500 deaths annually. And there's one interesting thing that you you may not have seen it, but there's a Bear Grylls episode mm-hmm. where he goes in. He's also in, in the mountains. Uh-huh. And he finds a, a 
beehive. And he decides he wants to get the honeycomb. So he goes in there, he winds up getting stung by a couple of bees, you know, while he's getting it. And sure enough, he goes into anaphylactic shock on TV. And so he starts feel, feeling sick, nauseous, and, and uh, starts having a little difficulty breathing. And he needed to have doses of epinephrine. And he had to have the EpiPen. Did anyone have an EpiPen? Yes, they had an, they had an EpiPen. Okay. So you, you can use EpiPen. Uh, that gives you a, basically a 1 to 1,000 solution, about 0 0.3 to 0 0.5 milliliters of uh, epinephrine. And this is very important. It has to be given intramuscularly. So you can't give this subcutaneously like you would, let's say, an insulin shot. Mm -hmm. you gotta, it's got to go right into the muscle. If you deep, don't do that, it's not going to gotcha. work. Now, people sometimes say, well, I have Benadryl, I can use that. But it doesn't work fast enough. And so it's not going to stop depends on, Right, it depends on how early you catch it. If you catch something super early, somebody who has had a lot of allergies and carries an EpiPen can feel it starting. And they have told me, including my daughter's current boyfriend, has told us that he takes Benadryl if he starts to have this dairy, life-threatening dairy allergy, and if he catches it early enough, the Benadryl will work. And he doesn't, it doesn't have to use his EpiPen very often. Interesting, because it usually takes too long to, to be able to work. One right? of their first dates, he had a hamburger that he told them he had a dairy allergy, and they supposedly cleaned the grill before they cooked his burger, but it must have had some butter on it. Wow. Or cheese or something because he bit into it and told her, okay, I have to leave. And so they left and got back to their apartment, which was just a couple minutes away. And he had Benadryl and, or her, his apartment. And he took the Benadryl and lay down. And he said, if, if within X number of minutes, if this doesn't calm down, if it starts to get worse, then we're going to have to go to the hospital. I'm going to do the EpiPen and then we're going to go to the hospital. Right. So she's standing there or sitting there looking at him like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you? He's like, okay, I, th I think I'm getting better. So the Benadryl, for some people in some situations, now this is just him personally, just, you know, something that he has said, his personal experience, it does work if he catches it early enough. If he misses it and doesn't catch it early enough, he has to do the EpiPen and go to the hospital. Now, interestingly enough, this particular person was given an EpiPen. Uh-huh. He got and he and he felt worse. Now, the okay. thing that people need to know that people need to know is that many people don't get better with one dose of EpiPen. That's why you should always have two two EpiPens. Excuse me. They come in a two at pack, all possible. Yeah. That's right. And so you if that's if if you find a situation where you got somebody with anaphylactic shock and they Fail to get better with one shot. You give them a second shot. And the, up to 35% of people will actually need a second dose. Now, interestingly enough, if you take apart the EpiPen, you can actually have some epinephrine left in the syringe. Okay. And you can, and you can actually possibly have more a little epinephrine, bit more a little gotcha. bit more a little epinephrine. bit extra okay that's right now interesting if, if it doesn't work if the two doses don't work then what you do is you inject with a very small amount of, ep of epinephrine under the tongue believe it or not under the tongue huh. 
Yep, and, and that's oftentimes what it takes to get the anaphylactic shock under control. And now, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the feminine beauty product, Photoshop. Ladies, are you dissatisfied with your face and body? Would you like to look perfect at all times and get rid of unsightly wrinkles, skin blemishes, and other imperfections? Well then, try Photoshop. Photoshop serves as foundation, eyeliner, eyeshadow, mascara, eye whitener, colored contacts, lipstick, pore minimizer, hair dye, and even as your own personal plastic surgeon. Enlarge your eyes, fix your nose, lift your face. That's not even talking about below the neck. Photoshop will immortalize your beauty, and no one will ever be the wiser as long as you never go out in public again. That's the miracle of Photoshop. Lock your door and get it today. Hey, this is the part of the show where I talk about topics brought up usually by readers, listeners, and viewers of our various social media outlets. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today, I'd like to talk about how a sense of community affects your chances of survival in times of trouble. Sure, we've all seen programs that follow the adventures and misadventures of individuals in survival settings. Sometimes one or two rugged survivalists will even survive an off-grid challenge, sometimes naked, for a period of time. Despite this, seeing the results of extended time alone in the backcountry, I come away with the feeling that isolation is a bad thing for human beings. Surprise, surprise. Well, let's imagine that a monumental disaster has occurred and you have survived. The power grid is down and it's unlikely to be up again for years. You, however, have prudently stored food, medical supplies, farming tools, and hunting equipment. You're safe and alone in your shelter. You're a fine, young, reasonably intelligent, and physically fit person with no medical issues. Well, it sounds like you figured out the formula for success, but guess what? You haven't. The problem with my description is one word, and that is alone. Lone wolves are considered to be resourceful and tough, and they are for a while. Unfortunately, the lone wolf usually ends up a pretty miserable creature. Face it, wolves should be in a pack. When I talk about this topic, I always post a picture of an animal from Tasmania called a thylacine. It looks a little like a wolf, but it has stripes on its back, so you might know it as the Tasmanian wolf or the Tasmanian tiger. Despite the names, it's not related to either. It's actually related to the kangaroo. Now, why did I choose this animal to illustrate my point? Look at it, and you'll see it's certainly much less impressive than, let's say, a majestic gray wolf. Heck, it's not even a real wolf. The reason I mention it is very, very simple. The Tasmanian wolf is extinct, and if you try to go it alone in a long-term disaster, you will be too. The most basic way to assure your well-being is to have help. The support of a survival group, even if it's just your extended family, is essential if you're going to have any hope of keeping it together when things fall apart. Off the grid, you're going to have many responsibilities. You have to stand watch over your property and supplies. You have to lug gallons of water from the nearest water source. You'll have to chop wood for fuel, perhaps. You'll have to search for food. To get a real idea of the situation, just fill a five-gallon bucket of water, carry it around the block. Piece of cake for you? Well, how about chopping some wood then? But do it after staying up all night outside your house. Maybe you can accomplish the above for a few days, but on a daily basis for an extended period, well, don't be so sure. Just do it for one day and you'll begin to understand what I mean. For most of us, it would be the very definition of a miserable existence. Now, it wouldn't take very long before your health would suffer. Exhausted and sleep-deprived, you'll be an easy target not only for marauding gangs of desperados, but marauding bacteria as well. 
Since your immune system weakens when exposed to long-term stress, you're going to be at risk for succumbing to illnesses that a well-rested individual would easily weather. Division of labor and responsibility makes a difficult situation more manageable. You can imagine how much easier this would be if you had a group of like-minded individuals helping each other. It's not just a physical exertion. You can't possibly have all the skills needed to do well by yourself. For example, Amy and I are medical professionals that graduated from the Master Gardener program for our state. We have a working food and medicinal garden, have ham radio technicians licenses, and have even raised tilapia in ponds as a food fish. We have some skills, but we have never done, say, any carpentry. We've never raised livestock. Neither have we ever been in charge of the security of others. There are those, however, that have done these things, but could use some of the skills maybe that we possess. Put together enough people with differing skills, and you have, even in the middle of a devastated city, a village. A village that's filled with people that can help each other in a crisis. A rugged individualist might be able to eke out a meager existence in the wilderness alone, but a society can only be rebuilt by a community. There's no time like the present to communicate, network, and put together a group of like-minded people. Now, how many? The right number of able individuals to assemble for a mutual assistance group? Well, that's going to depend on your retreat and your resources. If each of these people have accumulated food, medical supplies, and other essentials, you've got a pretty good start. The ideal group will have people with diverse skills, but similar philosophies. This is difficult to accomplish after a disaster has occurred. Before the you-know-what hits a fan, however, you can work to find like-minded folks that wouldn't have an argument every time something needs to be done. Identifying people that you can work with before a catastrophe hits, that pays dividends down the road. Now, unless you're already in such a community, you may feel that it's impossible to assemble a group of people that could help you in times of trouble. That isn't the case. Whether online or in person, there are others who think like you do. Start at your local place of worship, civic club, or similar groups, and you will, over time, find them. It's not enough to just be in a group, however. The people in that group must have regular meetings, decide on priorities, and be ready to set things in motion. You have to devise a plan A, a plan B, a plan C and decide what trigger events would set them in motion. Keep lines of communication open so that all your group members stay informed. In normal times, it's easy to become complacent about this stuff, but during many disasters, things will go downhill fast. If your group isn't on the same page, especially about what to do if a trigger event occurred, some of your members may not make it back to, say, a a backcountry retreat. This results in your community losing members with important skill sets. It just takes a road closure or two to block the success of a mutual assistance group. I have to say that there's more that goes into a successful survival group than just being, well, a group. Consider a copy of Charlie Hogwood's excellent survival group handbook for good advice on how to navigate the ins and outs of a harmonious survival community. It'll help you succeed even if everything else fails. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, our award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook won't teach you about successful group dynamics, but it will teach you about how to deal with over 200 medical topics off the grid. And don't forget to get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's all the time we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones. Wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. 
Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.